Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, the first program of 2024. Yes, it is January 2nd. We are two ways into a new year, which means we celebrate the arbitrary passage of time from one day to the next and pretend that from December 31st to January 1st, a year has elapsed. It's a bit of a weird thing that we do on New Year's. I've never really been a fan of it. I used to just be the Grinch of New Year's and hate the whole thing. And then one year, I don't know, maybe it was three years ago or so, I just had like a weird bit of New Year's spirit and I went to a New Year's party and, you know, convinced myself to stay up until, I don't know, like 12.02 a.m. And uh, this time I was actually, I was out at a New Year's dinner uh, for New Year's, which was like a, a big deal for me. And yes, I had to have a nap to make it to that point, but you know what? I did it and it was uh, delightful. So hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. We are right back into the thick of it here. Uh, as many of you may have seen, if you follow me on, I was going to say Twitter, but it's called X now. If you follow me on X, I was not in Canada over the holidays. I actually have always been, I was in Quebec one year for Christmas. I don't know if that counts as being in Canada or not, but I've always spent Christmas with my family. This year, though, my wife and I got out of Dodge and we were actually in Egypt, which has been like a lifelong ambition for both of us. And it was the only week we could find time to go. And I, so actually, I have a picture of it here. We have evidence that I was in fact in Egypt. As I, there we go. That's uh, me. And on top of me is a, oh no, sorry. I'm the one on top there. The uh, camel's on bottom. Uh, and in the background, the great pyramids of Giza, not Gaza. They're, uh, they don't really have pyramids there. Hamas blew them up. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, poor camel, but he uh, dutifully carried me along. And at the end of it, his handler uh, was very, very nice man. He, he came up to me and he said, I've taken care of you. And I said, well, yes, you have. He's like, good. Now you must take care of me and my family. And he put his hand out. And I was wondering how much he was trying to shake me down for. It ended up being like $5 or something. So it was absolutely well worth it. I also took in some of the other great majestic sites of Egypt. I paid a visit to this guy. Uh, this is uh, not for the faint of heart, this picture. Now, I know that looks like the remains of King Tut in King Tut's tomb. But that's actually uh, Justin Trudeau's polling numbers right there, believe it or not. They've been uh, lying dead for about 4,000 years just sitting there. Uh, and even a light gust of wind would just obliterate them into uh, dust. So that's not King Tut. That is uh, the Liberals' latest uh, polling data right there in uh, real time for you. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And one of the things that was so fascinating before we, we get into the uh, main show here. I had never been to Egypt before, so it was a, a very new experience. Uh, the police there are incredibly, incredibly corrupt. And I don't like stereotypes. I like, I don't like, I, I just don't. I, I don't like generalization. I don't like stereotypes. And so we, we had uh, one day, my, my wife and I, we had a, a guide and uh, the guide was with the driver and we were uh, traveling and there was this brand new bridge. So the Egyptian president, uh, Abdel el-Sisi, has been like huge on public works. He's building roads and bridges every which way. And there was this one new bridge that uh, everyone was excited about. The bridge didn't officially open until January 1st, but it was completed and, and it was open because people could drive on it. 
And the police officer that we encountered standing at the on-ramp was just there to like get everyone who wanted to go on the bridge to bribe him, which we learned was the only way you'd get on the bridge. And uh, I was like, okay, well, that's a little bit of an oddity. And then, you know, maybe all the police aren't that bad. We, but we, we go to this old temple, my wife and I, beautiful old uh, building. Well, not really a building, but a site thousands of years old. And there is this uh, police officer there with his uh, submachine gun. And he sees us taking pictures and he, he, you know, gestures for us to come over. And he starts showing us all of these different places there. He opens this one gate and lets us walk through. He points us here. It was a couple of minutes. And at the end of it, I'm thinking, oh, wow, what a wonderful police officer. That's so nice. He's bringing us behind these closed doors. And then we're in this tiny little dark tomb. And in one hand, he has his submachine gun. And in the other hand, he's just staring at me with his hand out, uh, waiting for me to pay him off for the service I didn't know I was getting. Now, again, fortunately, this scam was... Uh, basically all about like getting seven or eight dollars from me as well. So uh, the poor Egyptian currency at least means that uh, when you're getting hosed, because everyone in the country is trying to screw you. So when you're getting hosed, at least it's for a small amount of money. But uh, whatever you did, enough about me. Hope you had a wonderful, wonderful holiday here. Uh, I wanted to talk on this show about one of the things that does not change. I I mentioned glibly uh, Justin Trudeau's poll numbers. They have been in the gutter for months now. Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have been uh, riding high. You see some fluctuations here and there. But uh, Justin Trudeau would have, I saw one poll uh, recently, a 3% chance of forming government if the election were held on the day that the polling was done, whatever that was, it was early December. 3% chance, which means that out of 90, out of 100 scenarios, 97 of them would lead to Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives winning 3%. Uh, one of them might be, I don't know, nuclear catastrophe of the Conservative campaign bus uh, would lead to Justin Trudeau winning. So it's odd that he has been, as he does the round robin of interviews for the end of the year, so brazen in claiming that everything is fine. This was one of his interviews with Mercedes Stevenson. Historically, Canadian prime ministers don't get elected four times in a row, and people are being very clear that they don't like you in these polls. People are frustrated right now, but on a personal level, I made a commitment in 2015 to a whole bunch of young people who came out to vote for the very, very first time that we were going to be doing the right kinds of things to secure the promise of this country in a way that people were worried about. And years later, even with everything we've done on the environment, on inclusion, on gender equality, on on growing the economy, on reconciliation, those young people, eight years later, are having trouble paying their rent, worried about their future in ways that are just as tangible, if not more, because of the global context we're in. And I didn't make a promise that I was going to make things better for them and then walk away after four years or even after eight years. I said I'd be there to fight for them every single day. Even if That's they what don't I'm doing want you Listen, there'll be an election eventually in which people get to make that choice. But I am not giving up on them. I'm not giving up on Canada. I'm not giving up on the progressive vision of progress that we've been fighting for every single day over the past years. 
That's very much like you can't fire me, I quit. He, you know, she, her point in the question was a very valid one, which is uh, Canadians don't want you anymore. They don't like you. They don't want you around. And he said, well, I made a commitment to them. They're not getting rid of me that easily. It's like, no, no, no. They're forgiving you for the commitment. They want you to walk away. You, you don't owe it to them. You, In fact, you owe it to them to walk away. We are coming up, I believe it's in March. I, I can't recall exactly the date. I, I have it written down somewhere, but we are coming up on the 40-year anniversary of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's famous walk in the snow, which was that little late night walk he took through, uh, was it the grass or the sand? No, sorry, the snow. Uh, when he took that little walk and decided that he was going to be stepping down, that he had taken things as far as he could take them. Now, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau gets, I think, a lot of credit for being self-aware, but the reality is he had already had his moment uh, and he had already lost and it was only coming back and arguably he had his most uh, substantive term when he returned, but he had at that point nowhere else to go but down. So he he left and the, the so-called walk in the snow has now entered Canadian parlance. So will Justin Trudeau take a walk in the snow? I mean, every indication he's given in every interview, that one with Mercedes Stevenson being the most recent example here, is that you are going to have have to drag him out the door kicking and screaming if you want him to go anywhere. There is no uh, shame. There is no self-awareness. There is no introspection. When you look at polling numbers, which obviously you have to take with a grain of salt, he says, well, it's all these external things. I mean, it's not really about me. It's about all of these other factors. That's basically what he's saying here. So when he says we made a commitment to young people in 2015, yeah, you were going to legalize pot and you were going to change the voting system and you did just one of those because that one was the one that benefited you. Uh, the reality is Justin Trudeau made a commitment to young people. Young people in some cases are happy with him, in some cases they're not. But this idea that he has to stay there until the end of time or he's voted out, whichever comes first, is a very weird way. I mean, I'm a big believer in quit before you fail, which is uh, when you get to the point where you cannot do anything more, you should go out where people still believe that you had something to offer and that you did something. Uh, Sean in the ch in my uh, messaging here says, Gretzky is a great example of that. I'm assuming he's not referring to the Ontario uh, member of the legislature, Lisa Gretzky. So uh, I, I'm left to believe this must be a sports reference. But uh, Wayne Gretzky did something that apparently proves my point. So thank you very much for that, Sean. Very helpful. Uh, I'm sure the audience understands what you're talking about if I don't. But the I was just Seinfeld, I, I can use Seinfeld references. Seinfeld, Seinfeld knows this full well, because when the series Seinfeld ended, it was at the absolute apex. It was the top. It was like in the ratings. People were offering them more and more and more money just to keep it going. And Seinfeld and the cast said, listen, there's you were at the top. There is only one way to go, and that is down. So they canceled the show. They left people wanting more. They left people wanting more. Now, in the case of Justin Trudeau, he knows the people don't want anymore. He's already passed that point. Uh, you know, maybe the 2021 election was the logical point at which he could have made his exit. Probably about a year after that. I mean, I mean, it would have looked bad if he had just said when Pierre Polyev became the leader in 2022. All right, I'm out. I, you know, I've I've done it. He he can have a shot now. 
but he is not liked and he is not wanted. And he is the only single person who doesn't seem to realize that. Now, in his year-end interviews, he did the usual suspects. He did CBC, CTV, Global News. Well, Pierre Polyev did a very different approach. Pierre Polyev sat down with True North. He sat down with Rex Murphy. He sat down with Brian Lilly. He talked to all of these other folks. And what was interesting is the media then pounced on Pierre Polyev for not talking to the right kinds of journalists, because only the official Parliament Hill journalists are the real journalists. That was the approach that they tended to take about that. But it was fascinating to me. I mean, I actually got a lot more out of some of these Pierre Polyev interviews than I probably would have gotten if he was just being beaten over the head with uh, Rosie Barton's questions about tone and civility or whatever she would have asked him about had he sat down with her. But uh, what's fascinating here is that Justin Trudeau doesn't seem to realize the why for the polling number. He, he did mention in a bit of self-awareness that uh, Pierre Polyev has captured an anxiety and an angst in the Canadian population very well, but he still doesn't realize why things aren't working. This is a, a clip that I think really shows that. Where do you find optimism right now? Because I think that's something Canadians are struggling with, right? I think there is a frustration, anger, impatience, yeah. all those things. And I wonder where where you find that and where you would tell them to find it? Two things. First of all, a lot of the things that we're putting in the place now are going to be delivering in the coming years. As we're seeing inflation getting under control, as we see interest rates um, hopefully coming down in sometime in 2024, that's going to take pressure off. As we see $10 a day childcare become a reality across the country. But the building blocks are there. But even that's not even where I draw most of my inspiration from. It's our fellow Canadians. We saw it during the worst forest fire season on his, in history over the summer. The way people stepped up for each other, the way people were there for each other, the way people are there now with food banks, with supports, the way communities are coming together. Yeah, they're united and all being mad at the federal government and the governments right now because there's something to be mad about there. But at the same time, those people who throw up their hands and say, oh, Canada's just broken, couldn't be wronger because Canadians are not broken. They're facing really tough times, mm -hmm. but we're doing what we always do as Canadians. We roll up our sleeves, we're there for our neighbours, we lean into the headwinds, and we succeed. Some people don't buy that, though. I understand how tough it is right now. Yeah. Um, but what people need to be looking for is who is actually looking to solve the challenges we're facing and who's just looking to exploit them or amplify them. And that is going to be the choice uh, that will shape the next two years in politics. So basically he's saying Canada is not broken because Canadians are great. And okay, that's a, you know, a nice little heartwarming message. But when someone gets up and says Canada is broken, which is a, a line Pierre Polyev has used, and that's obviously where Justin Trudeau is going with that. When he says that, he's not saying there's a problem with Canadian people. He's saying that the institutions in this country are not working and are not serving Canadians. That There is something very different from saying Canada is broken than Canadians are broken. And Justin Trudeau is the one trying to uh, conflate these two, I, I would say quite wrongly. But there, there's also something, and, and this is a criticism you could make of Stephen Harper's government. It's a criticism you could make of the uh, former Ontario government under Kathleen Wynne. Uh, but we'll talk about it in the context of Justin Trudeau right now. He has been elected three times. 
He had a majority government in 2015. He had a minority government in 2019. He has a de facto majority government now because the NDP is propping his government up. Now, the reason that's an important point is because if you look at from 2015 to now, Justin Trudeau has had an eight-year period. By this fall, it'll be a nine-year period with which he can do effectively whatever he wants. So when he talks about, well, we're putting in things now that are going to start yielding benefits and reaping benefits years down the road, you're like, well, hang on, why you, you've had almost a decade. Why didn't you do these? Okay, maybe you didn't get time to do everything in your first term, but certainly your second, why didn't you do them? What, what was holding you back? And, you know, Stephen Harper, it was the same sort of thing. You could make the claim that in 2011 or 2015, by which point the Conservatives have won three elections already, anything in their platform, you are right to question, why do you even need this platform? You, you've been in government for so long. Why have you not done everything you, you've needed to do? I mean, the best thing you could do as a government, if you're running for a fourth term in office, is say, uh, you know, our platform is one page, and it's basically just maintaining all of these things we've already done. That, that's effectively it, because by that point, anything you haven't done is because you didn't come up with the ideas, or you were just holding back your best material, uh, just waiting for people to give you an encore. But sometimes I just want to see the best material in the main set. Now, the problem with that, I was once at a Journey concert and Journey made the fatal mistake of doing all their hits in the main set. So everyone left before the encore. But you know what? No one was left wanting more. So Journey understood that part, at least. I'm throwing, I, again, I can't do the sports references, but if you want me to do Journey references and Seinfeld, I've got you covered. Just none of this uh, Gretzky uh, stuff that people are talking about, you kids these days. Uh, one of the things that has changed this year is Saskatchewan has made good on its promise to not collect the carbon tax. They are no longer collecting a carbon tax on uh, fuel and heating. Their rationale is that the federal government gave this selective carve out for home heating oil, which disproportionately benefited Atlantic Canada. So Saskatchewan is saying to the federal government, well, you know what, tough luck, we are not going to charge the carbon tax to our people. Now, is this constitutional or not? I'm certain there's going to be a court battle about it, but it means that the provinces are not messing around when it comes to this standoff with the federal government over it. Uh, one of the things that I think will come up here is obviously where the feds go from here because no prime minister wants to be the one that ushered in a federalism crisis. And I would say that federal provincial relations have been uh, pretty strained right now, worse than I've ever seen in, well, worse than I can recall in my life, not worse than they've ever been. Uh, but this is a, a big problem. So uh, in the case of Saskatchewan, they're looking at the federal government and saying, you know what, if you guys are going to do this to us, we're going to do this to you. We've had uh, the Sovereignty Act, the Saskatchewan First Act. We've had the Notwithstanding Clause. All of these different provincial governments right now, from New Brunswick to Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, they've all been saying with alarming regularity now to the federal government, we are not going to play your game. So I think if I were to make a prediction for the year ahead, we will probably see more of this on different policies. Remember, Saskatchewan used the notwithstanding clause on a parental rights bill. It wasn't on the Sovereignty Act. It wasn't on an energy thing. They used notwithstanding clause to get around a provincial rights bill that a court had found unconstitutional. We've had Alberta that's talking about using this in many different contexts. Ontario 
has used the notwithstanding clause, which is that section of the Constitution that effectively lets uh, provinces preemptively say, uh, we are going to do this in spite of what the Charter of Rights and Freedom says. So if we see federal-provincial relationships like this, is that the best way of doing things? You know, one thing that I will, just to geek out on political science for a moment here, uh, the federal government kind of views itself as being uh, the overarching power under which provinces lie. But if you read the Constitution, the federal-provincial relationship is actually envisioned as more of a partnership. In some jurisdictions, in some contexts, a federal government has sole jurisdiction, in others, provinces have sole jurisdiction. And in a few areas, federal governments and provincial governments have to share jurisdiction. And I mean, really, if you're talking about, let's say, uh, healthcare or energy, these are supposed to be matters of provincial jurisdiction. They, they do not work for the federal government. They are not subordinate to the federal government. So uh, it is in some ways supposed to be a, an equal relationship or uh, to use the old line, first among equals to describe the prime minister. Well, you could also use that to describe the federal government. So, but again, at the same time, no one wants this really antagonistic relationship between the two. And I think that's going to be what we're seeing more of. But, you know, the charitable defense of, of what Saskatchewan and Alberta and the like are doing here is that they wouldn't need to do this if the federal government weren't trying to encroach into provincial jurisdiction time and time again. So we'll talk about what Saskatchewan is doing here. I also want to talk about the uh, fuel tax issue in Alberta. Chris Sims is our regular Monday correspondent, but obviously we don't have a Monday show this week, but it had been too long since we had heard from her, so we wanted to bring her on for a rare Tuesday appearance, the Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having us again. So let's talk here about what Saskatchewan is doing. I, I just laid the groundwork here, but effectively, are they in legally iffy territory here or are they pretty soundly protected? That's a great question. I think we're in kind of newer territory. We've got an actual, you know, we often hear people at the Taxpayers Federation email us and say something like, I'm not going to pay my taxes this year. Damn this government, which, you know, we appreciate that passion. Oh, you got my email. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for responding to our survey. So, <laughs> so what we find interesting here is that we've got the premier saying it. So now there's a heck of a lot more on the table. And what's really neat to see is that uh, Premier Scott Moe has really kind of got this confidence about him now. And I like to think that it's often due to the fact that we have Daniel Smith as the Alberta premier right next door. And so the two of them, I think, are kind of in a bit of competition with each other on who can stand up to the Trudeau government faster and more. And so what's interesting with Saskatchewan is that they have a crown corp when it comes to their power regulation and power delivery. Now, Quite often we don't like crown corporations because they can wind up being monopolistic. You don't have any competition and it can go sideways. But with the fight with Ottawa, it's been very useful for him to be able to do that. So much so that we've got Daniel Smith kind of going, hmm, maybe we should create a temporary form of an Alberta crown corporation just as a mechanism to fight Trudeau's attack on our energy sector. And so 
I think we're in pretty new territory here. I'd have to think long and hard about when the last time was that a provincial leader stood up with this kind of force saying, I'm refusing to collect your federal tax within my jurisdiction. We know that Quebec must have said something like this at some time in the past, but this is uh, definitely something big and bold coming from the West. Yeah, I would agree. And and I think that in the context of what Saskatchewan's doing here, they're really doing an end run and a very creative end run around the federal government. I'd say something analogous would be when Alberta said, we are not going to devote police resources to enforcing the gun grab. It was really a, a move the federal government hadn't anticipated and kind of what was a bit checkmated on this. I, I'll ask you then in the context of how this competition benefits people, because I agree. I mean, this one-upsmanship between Alberta and Saskatchewan is great. I was in, I, I want to say it was Pigeon Forge or Gatlinburg. It was one of these like tourist trap towns in Tennessee once, and they had a, a dollar store. And then you got drive a little bit down the street and there was a 99 cent store. And across from that, there was a 98 cent store. <laughs> And I was like, this is fantastic. I mean, they're probably all owned by the same company, but like, I was like, this is great. I mean, what, what better way to, to be a consumer than be in the midst of three businesses that are all vying for your uh, consumerism here? And if you're, uh, I think you and I were joking in the past, if you live in Lloyd Minster, which is that uh, city that straddles uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, you're getting the best of both worlds here. But uh, Canadians benefit when you have provinces that are wanting to uh, really provide a better value for their residents and, and for citizens here. But uh, the, the flip side of this is that Alberta is not doing everything perfect. Uh, the Alberta government this year reinstated, uh, as of yesterday, the fuel tax. And I know you were uh, really just desperately hoping and pleading with the government on my show a couple of weeks ago that they would walk this back. They didn't. So first off, how much is this for Albertans? Yeah, this is really frustrating. And so just to focus on the positive again for a second, it's it, the reason why we're really happy that Premier Daniel Smith and Premier Scott Moe are standing up to Trudeau is because it usually saves people money and it provides more accountability because typically the more local, smaller government is going to be more accountable and usually cheaper to operate than this big conglomerate amorphous thing that is called Ottawa. And so that is why we're, we're cheering them on when it comes to that sort of thing. Unfortunately, you're right. It's a big head scratcher. So one year ago, Premier Daniel Smith did the right thing. She fully suspended the Alberta fuel tax, which saved us 13 cents per liter of gasoline and diesel. And it was big savings. It was like $10 a minivan, $15 a pickup truck, about $130 for a trucker to fill up his big rigs. When you add it all up province-wide, it was saving around $100 million a month. So big time savings. Now, technically, yes, it was tied to the price of a barrel of oil. And when they announced the fuel tax suspension, they said, hey, if the price of oil drops below a certain threshold, we're going to partially uh, reimpose this tax. So that's the math part. But the politics part a year ago is when the premier announced why she was doing this. And the why matters here. She said she was doing this because people were struggling to afford the basics, because inflation was still a huge problem, and because Prime Minister Trudeau is obsessed with increasing his federal carbon tax. So she saw this as kind of a shield against Ottawa. None of that stuff has changed. In fact, it's getting worse. Trudeau is going to jack up the carbon tax in just a few weeks' time. Mm -hmm. But inexplicably, 
the Treasury bureaucrats in Edmonton have gotten a hold of Nate Horner, the finance minister, and whispered something into his ear, and they've now increased it. It's up to nine cents per liter. So for the first time in a year, Albertans are not paying the lowest fuel taxes in all of Canada. That title is actually now in Manitoba with the NDP premier, Wab Canoe. Yeah, and look, I... I think what you're saying there is valid and it's why temporary in terms of the government lexicon is never something anyone should take to the bank. But I'll ask you about the why here, because this would be an easy win for taxpayers to make this permanent. Is it just that the government in Alberta can't afford it? Is that their only rationale? Have they really defended the allowing this to go back on? That's what they're trying to say. But the problem here is that the math is staring at us in the face. So, Great question. If this, if they were teetering on the brink of a deficit of not balancing the budget, the Taxpayers Federation and people like us uh, would not be clamoring for them to extend this fuel tax relief. We don't want to see deficits. We want to see them running surpluses so they can pay down the debt, okay? Because the debt is a major problem. We're spending billions of dollars on interest payments per year. That isn't the case in Alberta. We have a $5.5 billion surplus right now on the books. They have a $5.5 billion surplus after a year of not collecting this tax. So mathematically, it's a big head scratcher as well. So even if, and they should, even if they kept their promise to put 50% of their cash surplus down on the debt, which they've agreed to do, fine. Andrew, they could still extend this by another six months and still have a more than a billion dollar surplus at budget time. So this is, again, like politically, mathematically, we don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. My only my my spidey sense is telling me that I, th I think in Edmonton, I call it auto wash at the federal level. I think in Alberta, you did you do a lot of talk radio here. Do they call it dome disease up in Edmonton? Yeah, get I think under so. They get under this dome and these bureaucrats at Treasury start. These are the same people, by the way, who want a PST like they are not our friends. You should not be mm -hmm. listening to these people. Um, my hunch is uh, that the politicians, the premier, the minister are catching a bit of dome disease and they're listening to the bureaucrats at Treasury and, who love higher taxes. Well, maybe we're uh, overdue for another Red Lobster Accord, which uh, if you don't get the inside joke, I'll explain it again later. I have explained, we have explained it in the past. I don't know if we've shown the uh, the famous picture, but- uh, Send yeah, the we'll, invitation. We'll have... We need another conference. Yeah, we have the Red Lobster Accord. Uh, <laughs> all right, Chris Timms, we will talk to you next Monday. Thank you so much as always for your time. Happy New Year. All right. Thank you. And happy new year to you as well. Uh, since we're uh, keeping on a little bit of a provincial bent today, I wanted to turn from uh, one area of provincial jurisdiction to another, which is healthcare. Uh, not to say the provinces are always managing this issue as well as they need to be. This is uh, probably no more acutely available and accessible to us than it is with wait times. Now, uh, wait times are, are not as much to, uh, an issue as they are or let me back up. We don't hear the discussion of it as much as we did a few years ago, even. There was a, a real pinch point where there was a crisis, especially in Ontario, of people being treated in hallways. You had hospitals that had to develop hallway medicine protocols. But when we talk about access to healthcare, especially to surgeries, which are, are very much important for people, 
they're still in terrible, terrible places. We know there are a number of uh, studies that have pointed to how many Canadians are just taking themselves off the wait list and going and paying out of pocket in the United States or elsewhere in the world. Our friends over at secondstreet.org have been tracking this issue relentlessly, and they found that uh, wait lists have increased by 5% with over 140,000 uh, more Canadians waiting for surgery, diagnostic scans, or specialist appointments. Joining me is the president of secondstreet.org, Colin Craig. Colin, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for the chat today, Andrew. Appreciate it. So obviously, uh, this is an issue that uh, Canadians, if they don't know about, it's because they're fortunate enough to be not on the wait list. Any Canadian who's ever tried to navigate the system is, is well aware of this here. And uh, we're not talking about examples of, of people that are you know, being turned away at emergency rooms because they had a heart attack and they're not being treated. But uh, that is also not to say that these are not very crucial things that people in Canada are not able to readily access. Well, that, that's right. I mean, this, these numbers that we've dug up, we asked every province in the country, a pretty straightforward question. How many people in your province are waiting for surgery, a diagnostic scan, or to see a specialist? And there were actually only three provincial governments that could tell us all three of those numbers. Um, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Alberta. And the other provinces gave us either one of the numbers or two of the numbers. So there's a lot of holes in it. We're looking at 3.1 million people waiting for those important healthcare services. Uh, and uh, you alluded to it. In many cases, sadly, uh, those are a lot of people that are suffering. And we tried to be cautious and try to fill in some of those blanks. If you go to our website, you've got this big grid with all the numbers the governments gave us with mm -hmm. a lot of holes. And if you fill in the holes to try to look at what that big picture looks like, it's probably about 5.1 million Canadians that are waiting or to put this in plain English, about one in eight Canadians are on a wait list right now for healthcare services. Just to just to jump on that point, the issues that you had from the provincial governments, is that a data collection issue or is it a transparency issue? And by that, I mean, do they have the numbers and they're not sharing them or are they just not making it a point of finding these in, this data? I, I think it's a, partially a, a data collection problem and uh, to be blunt, an incompetence problem. If, <laughs> if you have a problem, the first thing you need to do is understand how big it is and understand how you're going to get rid of it or attack it, fight it, whatever you want to call it. So if you're going to measure progress against how many people are waiting to see a specialist, well, the first thing you got to do is figure out, okay, well, how many people are waiting right now to see a specialist and how do we get that number down? And if you can't produce that number as a provincial government, I think that's a problem. So yeah, I, I think it's a, a problem in terms of the fact that they just, they don't seem to collect the data centrally in some cases. Uh, and in other cases, maybe they're just not even asking the question to find out. Well, and to be more cynical on this, not that I try to be a cheery optimist sometimes, but why would you want to collect the data if you know what it will show? And I think that's probably where we're seeing a little bit of this here. There's no motivation to go in and do an intensive deep dive into figures that are going to show provinces are, are not delivering the service they're supposed to. Yeah, no, that, that could be part of it. I mean, we've we got to remember too that they can often give us some data, but not others. So they could tell us right across the country, pretty much with the exception of Prince Edward Island, how many people are waiting for surgery. Um, but we got to remember that quite often with healthcare issues, you don't always need surgery. Sometimes you need some kind of other intervention, medication or some kind of other change, physiotherapy, whatever it is. 
is often cases where you don't need surgery. And so you've got to meet with a specialist to find out what that course of action is, maybe need a diagnostic scan and so forth. So uh, it's troubling that we can't get those numbers, but uh, like I said, the numbers don't seem to be good. There were some bright spots though. We saw some positive improvement over the past year in uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba and uh, Quebec were a couple of the ones that we highlighted where we've seen some good progress in terms of the number of people waiting. I know that the third rail in Canadian politics has always been healthcare. I mean, any discussion about the system yields just this knee-jerk, visceral, emotional reaction from people. We've had uh, mixed court rulings on, you know, what you're able to do as far as, you know, fee-based services and care. But uh, one thing we know in the case of uh, Quebec is that you have the the option to oftentimes go and get a service out of your own pocket. Now, that's not to say that when you're paying as much in taxes as you are for provincial healthcare, that's just, but if you're kind of just looking in self-preservation mode, I get why people do that. Uh, so for people outside of Quebec though, they don't have that uh, opportunity available. So they're either forced to just deal with it or to leave the country. Are they not? Yeah, that's basically it. It's a real messy situation. It makes no sense whatsoever. So you're right. If you're living in Montreal and let's say you need to get your hip done, you have, a few choices, one of which is you could wait for the government to provide you that hip operation and you get it done, you walk out, you don't face a bill, it's paid for through tax dollars. You also have the option of going to a local clinic in Montreal and get your hip done or maybe in Quebec City or somewhere else. You can pay for that privately and get it done faster. You have that option, public system or private option. Then obviously you have a third option, which is to uh, uh, leave the, the province altogether, maybe go to another country or another province, whatever. So Quebec is unique. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has given Quebec uh, this unique right. Uh, the rest of the country, you don't really have that option. There's a whole bunch of government regulations and barriers that mean that you can't pay, for example, in Vancouver to get your uh, your hip operation. And you have to travel somewhere else. So quite often you see people from Vancouver fly to Calgary. And you often see Calgarians do the same thing. They'll fly to Vancouver and pay for it. There, there's some interesting things that are happening there where uh, in Calgary there's actually a clinic that is enabled. It's a bit wonky, but they've been able to hire surgeons that are not part of the, part of the public system whatsoever. And you can actually now pay in Calgary for some private surgery locally. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. The problem is all these government regulations they're gumming up the healthcare system. They're leading to more people depending on the public system rather than some of those people deciding to pay privately. And when that happens, you take pressure off of the public system and you reduce wait times of the public system. And that, that's why no other developed nation on the country with universal healthcare does what Canada does. They make it easy for patients to have that choice because it's better overall for results. Yeah, well, and I want to talk about one of those ideas in a moment, but just on, on the weird sort of situation you described there in Alberta, one of the things I, I find so obnoxious about this debate is that we don't really have the system that the universal healthcare uh, activists think we do and kind of pretend we do, where we, it's not this truly 100% public system with nothing private whatsoever, because there are these weird loopholes and exceptions. I mean, you know, at 
on one end, you have just people that have a friend of a friend who's a doctor that can jump the line that way. But, but in other cases, you have a lot of clinics that operate in a very weird legal gray area. Uh, I've talked to some people. In fact, I, I did a discussion on this very show, and there was a, a, a private healthcare clinic in my city that does a combination of private and public healthcare. And I had a lawyer on the same show who was saying, well, I'm not convinced that what they're doing is legal. And, and the owner of the clinic said, well, yeah, we are. And, and here's why. But, but people can't even quite agree with what the law says in some cases on, on this stuff. And then you, you further add th to this, patients just want a solution. I, like patients don't care where it comes from. And uh, one of the points, your colleague uh, Dom Lusick wrote an op-ed for True North about this. And he said in the European Union, you can go to another EU country, pay out of pocket and then be reimbursed. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I'm never a big fan of, of government spending a lot of money, but my approach to this would be if the government has said that you had a right to this and they were going to pay for it anyway, it shouldn't matter where you got it from. But that is a no-go in Canada. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's sort of like taking the horse blinders off for governments, right? We have this approach in this nation largely where provincial governments think, okay, this is how we're going to provide health care to Canadians. And they're thinking within their own jurisdiction. Whereas what they do in the EU is they take the horse blinders off and they say, well, wait, we can allow patients access to the entirety of Europe and allow them if they want to go to another European country, they can go there, pay for surgery, and then get reimbursed by their home government. And it's there's it's not whatever they want to spend, it's up to what that government would have spent locally. So if, if we give an example in, in Canada, let's say in Ontario there, Andrew, that you need your hip operation. And let's say uh, that the government's going to tell you, well, they'll get to you next year. So in the meantime, you're in chronic pain, you're off work, you're not making any money, um, you're dependent on the uh, social assistance, whatever. It's a bad situation all around. But if they said to you, Andrew, okay, if we give you this surgery next year, it's going to cost $30,000 for us as a government to give it to you. We're going to give you the option of going somewhere else and you'll have access to $30,000 in reimbursement. Well, you might decide, well, look, you know, I've got a cousin in Lithuania. I'd love to see that cousin. I'm going to go over there, see that cousin. And at the same time, I'll get my hip operation because I can get it done for maybe 25,000 Canadian. And, uh, you know, I'll actually save the government some money. Well, you'd have that option. You could recover at your cousin's place, whatever. Or maybe you go to Tennessee or wherever. You would have that option suddenly as a patient. You'd have access to thousands and thousands of places to get that surgery done around the world. And for the government, it's, it's positive because they can get you back to work faster. You can start uh, working again, paying taxes and so forth. They're paying the money, say, this year instead of next year and that example of lithuania to you know they'd actually save a bit of money maybe if you went to tennessee it was thirty thousand or maybe thirty five thousand if it was thirty five thousand well then you're paying that difference between the thirty and thirty five thousand but it's good for the government because it, it helps uh helps them uh, uh, get you the care you need faster like so you get back to work for other patients who decide not to go abroad for surgery well, they benefit too, because now Andrew Lawton's not ahead of me in line. He's gone off mm -hmm. to somewhere else. I don't want to travel. I want to get my surgery in Ontario. Well, it's still good for me because now I get to move up a spot in line. So it's good for patients too. It's it's not a magical solution, but it can help in a time of crisis. We're in a time of crisis. So it's, it's an idea that we think that governments uh, should give a look at here in Canada. We've actually seen some governments kind of do this in Manitoba. They've been sending patients 
all over the world to Ohio and California, and British Columbia, and I believe Alberta as well, sending them to private facilities where they can get their hips and their knees done and whatever. That was one thing that they did to try and get their backlog down. And they've had some positive uh, results in Manitoba. The numbers are down about 21% for uh, the surgeries that they provided data for. So I think it's an option that could help. Yeah, very well said. You can read all of this and more over at secondstreet.org. The president, Colin Craig, always good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you very much. I, just, I will say on the note of fee-based service, I wasn't going to tell this story because, uh, well, it wasn't mine to tell, but I think I don't think she'd mind. Uh, my wife, uh, when we were over in, in Egypt, which I, I mentioned at the beginning, got quite sick and we were at this uh, one ho hotel. Uh, this is just before we came back and we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. Like we were, there was nowhere to go and no good way to get around. And uh, she was sick, like not like critically ill, but like just needed some drugs from a, a pharmacy. And I was like, I don't, didn't know where the pharmacy was, how to go to the pharmacy. Uh, so the front desk was very helpful. They said, well, there's a pharmacy uh, not far from here. They'll deliver it for you tonight. And he gave me the number and, you know, I, I called up the guy and it was like, you know, she needed a couple of, uh, it was like cough syrup and ibuprofen basically. And uh, they said, we'll deliver it in 20 minutes and it's going to cost you 180. And I was like, oh, that's a bit steep, but you know what? For like, delivery that seems you know whatever and we were a bit desperate and they meant 180 egyptian pounds which was five dollars for the drugs and the uh, delivery fee so uh sometime not not that I, egypt's healthcare, I don't, I don't know if it's good or bad but uh, sometimes you can get things for a bit cheaper than you think uh elsewhere so uh welcome to you all if you're coming in and happy new year we will talk to you in just 23 hours and 15 minutes with more of the andrew lawton show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.